Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to the fourth season of Case Studies in Treating Ocular Surface Disease. This time, our esteemed panel of Drs. Leslie O'Dell, Emily Seitz, and Ivan Mack deliberate on a myriad of interesting cases across the ocular surface spectrum. In our first case, Dr. Leslie O'Dell discusses a patient presenting with ocular pain. All right. Well, I'm Dr. Leslie O'Dell, um, Medical Director with Medical Optometry America, and I am really excited to present a case um, presentation of a patient that I've been working with for several years. Um, I always love this platform because it really allows me to pick the brains of my colleagues and maybe get some insights that I can take back um, and solve the mystery of some of these really challenging dry eye patients. So this is a patient that I was introduced to, like I said, several years ago, and I will just call her um, my eyes hurt all day because that's really how she presented just with a lot of symptoms throughout her day. Um, each and every day. She's a 50-year-old Caucasian female with long-standing symptoms of tearing, itching, redness, ocular pain. Her past ocular history is interesting for that she, you know, is only 50, but she did clear lens exchange and she did that a few years prior. And then she even had some complications with that. So they had to do a repositioning surgery. Um, around the time of that procedure, she also had Lipiflow and IPL done both by an outside provider. When I first get to meet her, I, I know that she does have hypothyroidism. She's treated for fibromyalgia. She's also had a hysterectomy, you know, so right then my kind of senses go up on this patient who's still suffering a lot with dry eye, despite some treatments. Um, I really look at her systemic history and think that could be fueling some of her inflammation for sure. She was presenting using CEQA twice a day, and then her tier of choice was retain MGD. And then medically, she was treated, like I said, for fibromyalgia using gabapentin orally and tyrosine for her thyroid disease. She was correctable to 20-20 in both eyes, normal pressures. Her Shermer test, again, kind of points me in that direction of a systemic workup for this patient. She measured it five in her right and one millimeter in her left. Zero tear breakup times. And then this central staining, which you'll find is what has been really the, the um, cross to bear that I have with this patient is no matter what I've been doing, I can't seem to clear this central SPK for her. I noted that she did have reduced corneal sensitivity in both eyes and then a pretty dramatic um, meibomian gland presentation, which is probably why her history of IPL and lipoflow prior. So she had grade four atrophy. That means that 75% um, or more of her glands were showing atrophy. And then if I look to see how many glands are secreting using the CORB scale of grading liquid secretions, I was measuring in at zero for the 15 glands. And I really love doing um, that crystal tear report because it not only shows me myography, but it also will show me tear meniscus height, um, non-invasive tear breakup time, and then redness, which patients really like to see. So I'm sure you both would be thinking the same in this patient, you know, let's figure out if there is something fueling the fire systemically. So for her, I, I did a Sjogren's workup, which in this case I did um, ANA, um, SSA, SSB, 
you could also do the early markers with the show labs. You know, that's something that you might think about. And actually, I will throw it out to see if there's anything else you would have added to your systemic workup for this patient. Yeah, this is pretty comprehensive. I'd still look for other sources of inflammation. Um, you know, if she had any history of chronic inflammation or anything like that, you definitely want to look at HLA-B27, um, maybe a rheumatoid factor, looking for rheumatoid arthritis. But I mean, I agree with what you did, looking for Shermer's and an ANA is a, is a great start. Yeah, and I think that's a great call out with HLA-B27. You know, we oftentimes think about that more in uveitis, but if it's inflammatory and it makes a lot of sense to use that in your dry eye patients. So not surprising that she did come back with positive Sjogren markers and also positive ANA. And I'm hoping that, you know, I have been hoping that using that rheumatology will improve my ability to target the corneal surface, but I have been struggling on this patient. Um, obviously my plan is to increase corneal integrity, decrease her chronic pain, make it so that she no longer has this feeling of hurt all day, every day. Um, and usually when I'm starting to set up my treatment plans, I'm thinking about rebalancing homeostasis for my patients. So for her, I feel like I really have, you know, run the gamut of treatments. We have gone from membranes just to try to again heal that corneal surface. She has been using um, serum tears. She actually even went through a course of Oxervate because of her decreased corneal sensitivity. Um, and then actually is where I, I referred her out to a colleague um, and she was able to get on PRP drops. And I went that route because of how um, horrific her glands look. And then my next step is scleral lenses. Um, when we look at the glands, because we can't just target the cornea and forget about the meibomian glands, we've gone through yet more treatments. And so when I, when I inherit these patients that have had other therapies, I always talk to them about the chronicity of the disease and that Lipiflow or IPL wasn't going to be a catch-all one-time treatment that was going to cure their problem, especially when there's that much gland atrophy. So under the guidance of the doctor that started the PRP, we actually went ahead and did four IPL sessions, including expression upper lower lids. Um, each time we did the thermal expression following her IPL. And then we actually even went the route of meibomian gland probing with this outside provider. So again, after some membranes, after some serum tears, a, a round of Oxervate, Regenerize, um, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, am I ever going to make an impact that's going to help this patient get through her workday more comfortably? And that's where I'd love to hear how you approach these complex cases, especially when they're already on certain modalities and have had certain treatments prior to your evaluation, you know, and how you introduce the same treatment or other treatments and what more you think we could do for a patient like this. Yeah, I'll just kind of um, interject a little bit here. Um, I think the key, you know, you know, you have a diagnosis of Sjogren's. I trust this patient was probably started on hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil for systemic control. You know, she isn't. She's just on gabapentin for her fibromyalgia. So I, I'm not sure that the rheumatologist yet did that, but that's another great call out. Yeah, because, you know, unless the systemic condition is really addressed, I mean, you're having a, you know, a pro-inflammatory state that's just going to continue and you know, you, you can minimize it, but it's just going to keep flaring back up. So I think really addressing the underlying systemic disorder will go a long way to helping, um, you know, provided that was done and, and, and was, was being treated. You know, I, I really think about all aspects of ocular surface disease. So obviously you are right to focus in on the meibomian gland disease. Um, you know, IPL is a great choice. Um, issue with IPL is 
Usually they get the lower lids with IPL. They don't treat the upper lids. It's kind of hard because of your brow, unless they put in a um, corneal protector. Then you can do IPL directly over the corneal protector. So um, that's something to make sure of with IPL that the upper lids get treated. Um, thermal lid pulsations, you know, great option. Sometimes I'll combine IPL and thermal lid pulsation together for a super treatment. And then, you know, I'm thinking, you know, anything to increase tear production, sometimes pulse steroids, you know, topical corticosteroids. Uh, we now have, um, you know, so, uh, agents approved for dry eye flares. Those are helpful in these conditions to kind of really quiet down the hot spots. And, and I think everything else that you're doing is right on track. Yeah. Just to add, I, you know, you kind of said, okay, when someone comes to you with, they seem to be on the gambit of everything. How do you start and how do you tease it out? And sometimes I think that can be difficult because you're like, okay, where were they going with this or what lines were they thinking? And sometimes you feel like you're just throwing everything at it. The interesting point of a scleral lens is you're constantly bathing that cornea. So if you have it constantly protected with, you know, scleral fluid, that could be a potential to resolve it and, and hopefully regress some of the inflammation and protect the ocular surface even further. Yeah, and great call outs. And we did in this case use scleral shields and treat her upper lids because when I did her myography, she has such significant gland loss on the bottom that I did want to image her upper lids just to see if it's even, you know, salvageable at that point. That is something that we did do was the upper and lower lids. And again, I do think that is the problem here and is that it's fueled systemically for her and just working more with the rheumatologist. Um, Another thought that I had has, was this Acthar, you know, the injectable um, cortisol-like medication that helps reduce inflammation, but I think I'm going to do that through maybe her rheumatologist. Um, but I, I do think that you gave me some great points, and I'm really excited to see how she does with sclerals. We just started the process of getting her fit in them. I mean, maybe I should have introduced that a little bit earlier in the whole process, but, you know, phoning a friend is always very helpful. So I have leaned on, you know, at least one other provider in my area, just because I felt like I did reach a limit for some of the things I wanted to do and getting her on things like the PRP drops and doing gland probing was important. Um, and I always, you know, really love to, like I said, pick the brains of people like you just to give me a little bit more insight on how to better serve a patient like this. So I thank you so much. Great, great case. In this next session, Dr. Emily Seitz presents an award-winning case of filamentary keratitis. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Emily Seitz and I currently practice a kind of a unique modality. Um, I saw this case of filamentary keratitis when I was working with Dr. Melanie Denton at Salisbury Eye Care and Eyewear. And it's really neat because I actually work also with the doctor that ended up referring the patient. Um, so it was a really cool way to kind of see how our colleagues work and understand dry eye. And I'm excited to be here to hear some of the practitioners thoughts who are experts in dry eye and see, you know, what could I have done differently in a case like this. Uh, filamentary keratitis is something that's exciting and interesting for me, especially as a new practitioner who's only been in the field for about a year and a half, because it's one of those cases where you're like, okay, this is the textbook definition of what I'm supposed to do. But of course, sometimes it doesn't play out the way that you think it would when you're rooting from whales. So here's some things that are considerations to think about when it comes to pivoting in a case of filamentary keratitis. 
So this is a 57 year old white female and she came to us kind of as a referral for a specialty dry eye clinic. She said that her eyes first started getting really, really, really dry when she went to Atlanta. So maybe a little bit of environmental change that triggered some of this dry eye that was occurring. She says that on a pain scale, it's about six out of 10, um, but she did see her primary eye care provider and he was the one that kind of referred her for an evaluation. She came about a month later in December of 2021. And at this point, she was no longer driving. That's how bad her vision was from her dry eye. Prior treatments included warm compresses, omega-3 fatty acids, lubrication tears and ointment, and Lodamex after two weeks with no improvement. Her medical history is pertinent for LASIK in 2002, hypothyroidism without any ocular involvement, Pemphigus vulgaris, which is an inflammatory skin condition, and a negative Sjogren's panel by her primary care. Like Dr. Odell was kind of mentioning too, when it comes to Sjogren's, um, this is an interesting case because I kind of ask, well, did they do a full workup or do you remember what the findings were? Because I've found that sometimes patients who were previously diagnosed with fibromyalgia, they don't really understand their diagnosis or sometimes they've been told, they couldn't find anything else. And so this is the diagnosis that they gave me. So I do dig a little bit deeper to see if this is something that I might need to repeat. When it came to her dry eye testing, her symptom score was 77, which we know is in a severe category. Her visual acuity in the right eye is 2050 and left eye 2025. Schirmer's was reduced. And on inflammatory, she had a strong positive in the right eye, weak positive in the left. And then myography for upper lids of the right whereas grade one, lower grade two, upper grade three, and lower grade three for the left eye. Her skin type was type two by Fitzpatrick typing analysis. So you can see conjunctival injection, especially inferiorly of both eyes, a lot of SPK, a lot of staining, that's with um, sodium fluorescine and then a filter on top. On the right, there are some rolled up epithelial cells that almost look jelly-like, like little bubbles. And then when you stain them, you can see that those are ruled up epithelial cells that look very characteristic of filamentary keratitis. On the left eye though, there's this little erosion to the area and she really only said six out of 10 pain. So I kind of probed her a little bit more, um, but she didn't seem too, too bothered. So I wondered if there was a little bit of corneal neuropathy involved. So it kind of begged the question to me, Drs. Mack, Drs. Adele, which would you treat first? I would think as far as the patient's complaints that the right eye, that's probably where you're getting your six out of 10 pain, right? But definitely if you think there's some kind of neurotrophic, this definitely looks like it could be turning into some kind of ulcer as well, but there is some dye uptake in the middle. I feel like I would probably try to be targeting both, but I know your patient's pain is probably coming from that right side. Yeah. That's good input. And, and that was kind of like where I felt I was like, ah, I don't know which eye to treat first. And especially when you, they come into you in like an emergency state, it kind of makes you question, where do I go from here? Dr. Mack, any input? Yeah, I, I definitely agree that that left eye, it's, that's almost a classic picture for neuro, early neurotrophic keratitis and definitely filamentary keratitis on the right eye. So you've got to be aggressive with, with both eyes for sure. Yes, we, we diagnosed it exactly as you guys were describing. We said, okay, this is definitely keratoconjunctivitis sica. We're going to reorder the Sjogren's panel just for that reason that we just really weren't sure. And especially because her Schirmer's was so reduced, uh, that was something that we really wanted to take a look at. Definitely filamentary keratitis in the right eye. And I was going textbook, okay, remove the corneal filaments. I just kind of anesthetized her and just kind of tried to remove them as gently as I can. You know, I know that they say sometimes you don't want to remove them because it's almost like peeling 
like a loose area of a, a hangnail almost or a cuticle where you start peeling, then it just keeps removing more. Um, so curious to hear what your thoughts are with that. And we tried to start the process ordering acetylcysteine, starting restasis and pernicillin acetate to try and decrease how much inflammation was on the right eye. You know, I asked why left or which eye, right eye or left eye, uh, because ultimately we wanted to try and do a membrane. And we did end up doing a membrane on the left eye to start. You can see it's a little bit, a little wrinkling. I did a dry membrane and I like to put it into a bandage contact lens. That's my preferred method. I feel like you can decenter it if you want to that way pretty easily. And then one really great clinical tip that Dr. Denton, you know, brought in is she said, let's make sure that we're keeping them on an antibiotic. You know, at a previous office where we did a lot of membranes, we didn't do that. But, you know, her suggestion was, hey, if something starts to grow with that membrane, um, we're covering it on an antibiotic standpoint. What are your guys' thoughts with that? Yeah, I don't think you're going to go wrong, you know, just doing anything to prevent a, a secondary infection, especially since you are, you know, compromising the cornea with the membrane in the sense that, you know, I, I don't know how the oxygen transmissibility with the, with the contact lens might be reduced. So definitely a smart idea. On her follow-up visits, we did end up removing that bandage lens. Like I said, those filaments ended up coming back on the, the right eye. Um, we decided then to go ahead and put an amniotic membrane into the right eye because it was going to take a very long time, ended up taking very, very long, like two weeks for us to get any kind of acetylcysteine started. So it was a huge, huge improvement when we did do the amniotic membrane for the right eye for the filaments. So it was really, really impressive to me. Um, the patient was feeling a lot, lot better as well and vision improved as well. We did also start her on Regenerize three times a day for both eyes, and we were still waiting to see if we could get acetylcysteine for long-term management. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. So the huge improvement that she ended up making is now she felt very comfortable to drive. You can see her expression as well in that video. Uh, and she's using less artificial tears, which I think sometimes is a really great thing to address, especially when you have dry eye patients that you feel like they don't feel like they're doing better with IPL is asking some of those lifestyle modifications. Are you using artificial tears quite as much? Or, you know, even for myself as a dry eye patient, one thing I don't do as much since IPL is I don't have to use my brooder mask as much. So it's things like that, that sometimes you, patients might say, okay, my dry eye feels a little bit better. But when you look at their whole maintenance and what they, they're having to do, the burden on their care, it's really improving as well. So some of the takeaways from this, you know, I really thought in the absence of acetylcysteine or while it's taking so long to get that from a compounding pharmacy, we might be able to reach for amniotic membranes to help resolve some of those filaments early on. Um, novel SS autoantibodies SP1, CA6, and PSP are going to be indicative of early Sjogren's syndrome. In mixed mechanism, advanced dry eye disease, you can consider maintenance IPL to minimize the recurrence of getting to that really, really inflamed state. And then caring for the anterior surface, of course, has a profound impact on patients' lives. You could see she went from a state of not being able to drive to now being able to drive an hour away. And she's really, really pleased with having that back in her life. 
these patients oftentimes have that presentation that they can't keep their eyes open. I had a similar patient in my past that that was her presenting was, you know, she could not physically keep her eyes open in the day. Um, and I will say that my only advice, because, you know, this case is going to end up in your chair again. Um, now you know where to go for your acetylcysteine, but that's one of the things that I found was very helpful is I got to know the cornea specialist in my area because he was doing a lot of compounding through a local pharmacy. So he kind of helped make that introduction and whether it was something like mucomist or if it was um, non-preserved methylprednisolone drops that we sometimes would use in really um, chronic keratitis patients as well. Um, but having that on hand is such a game changer. Yeah, one other point too, for these kind of filamentary keratitis cases is make sure you're using, you know, obviously they're using tears, but preservative free is really, really important because, you know, the preservative toxicity definitely can influence the disorder as well. Great. Thank you guys for that input. Appreciate it. Great case. In the final case, Dr. Ivan Mack discusses a combined IOL and ocular surface emergency. It's great honor to be here with such esteemed faculty and colleagues here. My name is Ivan Mack. I'm a, an ophthalmologist in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm the founder of Metrolina Eye Associates, and uh, we are a comprehensive MDOD practice in Charlotte. So with further ado, I will start our case here. This is a 74-year-old gentleman with cataracts. Um, he has an underlying history of, of dry eye and, and some floaters. Uh, medical history is kind of contributory here. He has atrial fibrillation. And the med that I highlighted that is um, in question is amiodarone. As you know, with amiodarone, they get um, a, a vortex of oral keratopathy on the cornea and LASIK enhancement is contraindicated for these patients. So we really had to nail the results and, and do the case uh, properly um, and avoid a, a LASIK enhancement to, uh, to satisfy this patient's demands. Um, decreased vision, glares down to 2050. Um, pressures are fine, tear osmolarity scores are mildly elevated, and he was insistent that he didn't want to wear glasses uh, post-cataract surgery. We kind of uh, went through the exam. Um, uh, some lamp findings were significant for mild to moderate MGD. He had that corneal verticillata, as we noted. He also had a little bit of uh, basement membrane dystrophy. It was mild, but it wasn't in the visual axis. So we got pretty consistent K readings. Um, typically we get three different measurements of the K readings and centrally they were all very tight. He also had a little bit of mild corneal staining and fairly uh, cataracts consistent with the vision and the, uh, the retina essentially was normal aside from the, uh, the floaters that we mentioned earlier. And the biometry showing the significant astigmatism in both eyes. Um, about a buck and a half sill in the right eye and a, a dollar of sill in the left eye, um, uh, both um, against the rural cylinder, which is what we expect. So the plan for this patient was to do femtoacetated laser cataract surgery. Um, he had never done monovision before. So we kind of talked about, well, let's see how we do with, um, with laser. We'll do one eye, see how you like it. And then we can decide what we want to do with the second eye. I typically do cataract surgery about a week apart to, um, to get them through the, they don't have to use drops as long and make sure everything goes well. We talked about some OSD pretreatment um, due to the mild nature of his condition. I put him on aggressive tears, brooder mask, and I typically use uh, Avanova for lid hygiene um, before and after cataract surgery. And we use typical preoperative meds to cover for CME, for inflammation and uh, reduce the risk of infection as noted. So everything goes great with the right eye. We have an uncomplicated cataract surgery. We have a toric IOL that we use to correct the astigmatism. 
post-op day one vision is 2025. The patient's happy, really notices improvement. And we talk about, well, what do we want to do with the left eye? We can kind of balance the vision with that. You'll have great distance vision, but you don't, you won't have any rear vision. And he was adamant, you know what? I want to go ahead and do monovision. I want to go ahead and not have to have readers for everything that I do. Uh, this patient um, had some underlying issues where I think the coronal aberrations were a little high. He wasn't a great multifocal IOL candidate. So that's why we kind of looked at uh, monovision for him as well as the, uh, the corneal issues. We wanted to really make sure that we kind of didn't um, have to do an enhancement and monofocal lenses are a little bit more forgiving. So we did the left eye cataract surgery a week later and we have a complication. Um, the femtosecond laser creates an anterior capsular tear. We get a little rent um, in the anterior capsule. Uh, we get through the, the femtosecond laser okay and we're, we notice the rent and we try to be very gentle we have to do a hydrodissection, hydrodelineation to free the cataract from its capsular bag attachment. We're very careful. We gently spin the nucleus. Things look good. And we go ahead and introduce the, uh, the phaco probe into the eye on a low flow setting, again, trying to protect the eye. And we find that the rent just immediately goes posteriorly and the whole nucleus drops. So here we are. This patient needs a toric lens and we can't use a toric lens and he's adamant about not wearing glasses. So basically what we went ahead and did is we did a, a sulcus uh, monofocal lens. Um, we reduced the power to, to compensate for its change of position. And we had to deal with the astigmatism. So what we did is we made two keratome stab incisions at zero and 180 degrees. And I knew this patient was gonna have retina surgery the next day. So we had to suture those incisions as well. But those three millimeter keratome incisions kind of um, at zero and 180 degrees should take care of that one diopter of astigmatism um, that he was noted to have uh, preoperatively. We referred him to my retina colleague. He saw the patient the same day and the next day had successful um, pars planar lensectomy uh, performed. And then this is what happened when he sent him back to me. Uh, right eye looks great. In his left eye, he has a huge epithelial defect. Um, he still has persistent inflammation. Um, the, the, the retina specialist kept him on dilating drops for a few days just to kind of make sure that the lens position stayed exactly where it should be. And so we now have this huge epithelial defect, uh, 2100 vision, the patient's not happy. So we've got issues here. We've got a big corneal abrasion and we've got underlying ocular surface disease. Thank goodness this was the second eye. Exactly. <laughs> That's and in, what the I'm of, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, what's the refractive outcome going to be here? Because we have no idea where we are. So kind of throw it out there in a, in a case like this, management options. Where do you go? Where do you start? Well, I would be thinking for sure some kind of membrane on the, an epithelial defect that large. So I don't know if you were looking at um, something like Procara for that patient or, or dehydrated membrane still, but that would be what I would be thinking. Of. Yeah, I definitely agree with your thinking. That's kind of what we did. So we, we started, you know, with a bandage contact lens. Sometimes if you withdraw the steroids, um, these patients can kind of heal rapidly. So we kind of decreased his, his, his steroids, kept them on an NSAID for, for discomfort. We tapered the steroids rapidly, and two weeks later, you know, after two weeks, he still has this persistent epithelial defect that's really not any bigger, um, any, any smaller, excuse me. So we did a cryopreserved Procara, you know, amniotic membrane graft, and we brought him back a week later, and he still has a persistent epithelial defect. So we went ahead and did a second amniotic membrane. And then he comes back um, still with 2400 vision, and he has, you know, um, some punctate epithelial standing on the right eye, which is the, the non-involved eye. And he has this persistent 1.7 millimeter abrasion. He's had two rounds 
of Procaras. And it, it, yes, it's slightly smaller, but he's frustrated. He has diffuse, diffuse punctate epithelial staining, and he does not want to do a third amniotic membrane graft. So at this point, you know, his treatment course has been a little bit more complicated. Um, we'll throw it out for what would you want to do for this patient at this point in time? I mean, what I like about that is though, sometimes when you take the one off, you think, oh, did that really do what you wanted? And so knowing that you can do back to back and you actually can, there's no global period there. You don't have to worry about that. So I think sometimes doctors would think, you know, maybe it's not going to heal. I'm assuming that now he must have also some kind of neurotrophic problem as well. Now you're weeks after your initial treatment. So something like Oxervate or even amniotic drops at this point, uh, serum tears, I guess, would be another thing. Yeah, I would be kind of thinking along the same rate. I mean, I know that the Thomas John study said that with the, at least Procara, it does deliver healing effects for up to three months. So that's a positive thing that I really like from, from that study, that conclusion. Um, but certainly in patients that are post-surgical, I'm thinking about limbal cell deficiency and whether or not we can do anything to at least enhance or, or stimulate growth. Yeah, we might've made it worse with those keratome incisions that we did. So we obviously, kind of like a post-LASIK case, um, you know, the, the nerves, they grow heavily, you know, at the, the zero and 180 is where the nerves are heaviest. So we might have induced some um, neurotrophic effect with our, our stab incisions, which is me trying to reduce the astigmatism here. So I, I agree with definitely your line of thinkings. We went ahead and did a serum tears, just like you suggested, every couple hours. And, um, you know, five weeks, the epithelial defect had, had gotten down to 0.3. He was noticing, you know, um, some improvement. And about six weeks, it had closed. Vision was still down a little bit, 2100, because he had that kind of diffuse punctate epithelial staining. We told him to decrease the serum tears down to QID. And then two weeks later, he comes back and it's miraculous. I mean, the epithelial staining has gone. Um, vision, 2020 in the right eye, 2040 in the left eye. And he's a near J2. And he is really happy. So this was where we had a great save in a complicated case and with a complication from surgery. And I think we were really able to rehabilitate the ocular surface and rescue and, and obtain a fantastic outcome. We talked about, you know, we're worried that, you know, if we withdraw the serum tears away, is it going to kind of come back? And we just elected to continue serum tears indefinitely in, in both eyes. And I haven't seen him since, but um, I haven't heard any difficulty that he's having. You know, that's interesting because I, I saw a patient just today who was started on serum tears in addition to foundation medication with maybe sequa or something. And her corneas look so good, you know, but I wasn't there at the beginning of the journey. So I'm saying, let's just keep everything the way it is right now. Cause I certainly don't want to be the one that's going to take it away and cause whatever she probably looked like two years prior to me seeing her. Um, but this is definitely, I love this case for, for the reasons, you know, that, everything doesn't always go as planned. What I would be interested, you know, when you see about the vortex keratopathy, they often don't say it's going to have any impact on your patient visually, but I would assume that was part of why maybe you had such trouble healing the epithelium. Yeah, that's, that's definitely contributory because you know, the epithelial cells are not going to close normally being on amiodarone, but obviously we couldn't stop the medication because of his underlying atrial fibrillation. But, um, you know, the serum tears, they did, they did the job. And, you know, I've been very impressed with serum tears in my practice. We're using it more and more, um, especially since we have a lab that's in our, that compounds the, uh, the, the drops in our, our service area now. So uh, definitely something to keep in mind. And it was great for healing this patient's ocular surface.
And even though for some people, you know, and that, that's another great call out too, is sometimes CRMTers seem like, well, how am I supposed to do this in my clinic? Because I can't do a blood draw. But companies now have made it so easy. Um, I know for me personally, I either use my cornea specialist who does a lot of compounding like, or I use vital tears and I don't have to go anywhere else than me prescribing them. So it's, it is something you can do, you know, in your everyday clinic for sure. Dr. Max, did you feel like you had any difficulty convincing the patient, Hey, this is the next step that we need to do when so many things had gone unexpected? Well, he wanted, he wanted his vision rehabilitated and I, I kind of explained the underlying condition to him. And so he was willing to try it. And, you know, it's, the conversation I have with my patient is, you know, we're going to do something a little hokey. We're going to use your own body to heal itself. We're going to use the natural growth factors and healing properties that are in your blood. You know, they're not going to be red, the drops, you know, it's just the, the top layer once we spin the blood cells down and it has amazing regenerative properties on the cornea. And for him, it, it definitely did. Yeah, that's a great case because as someone that's a new practitioner, I always want things to heal up very, very quickly. And sometimes you just have to stay the course and just let it do what you know it's going to do in time. For sure. Great job, guys. Thank you to our panel for an engaging and informative discussion. And thank you for listening.